grace that meets us day in and day out, for you are the Lord of this morning as you have been the Lord of the ages. We praise you and we delight in your presence this day and ask now that you will continue to enable us to worship in spirit and in truth, that you will enable us to learn at your feet your word. And I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior, that there would not be offense at the gospel, but that there would be rebuke, that there would be conviction of sin, and that there would be a response to your forgiving grace. Please work in us here in this time in a way that you alone can work for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the salvation of those who do not know you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What comes to your mind when I say these words? What feeling kind of comes over you as you hear the word mother? Math class. I figured there'd be chuckles. Table game. Travel. People obviously respond very differently based on their experiences to any such concept. For some, the word mother, it warms your heart. You just think, my mom. And there's joy that's there. For others, there's fairly indifferent. And for some, mother brings up bitter, painful memories. Travel. There's one person sitting next to another, and the one thinks, oh, work responsibility. And to the other, fond memories and hopes for the future. Travel's a wonderful thought of anticipation. What about this word from the religious world? How does this hit you? Legalism. Legalism. Well, let's take a person who's escaped a cult. They hear the word legalism, and it might even bring sweat to their brow. Fear. Bitterness. Or the person who grew up in an abusive home where religious rules were used to club them over the head, to control and to be mean. Legalism is an ugly, ugly word. But even born-again Christians who've never suffered such negative experiences, for most, I think, and particularly in this land, legalism is just an ugly word. I haven't had any experience of it necessarily, but it just isn't good. We know it's not a good idea. They may not have anything like an accurate definition of what legalism actually is, but they don't like it. It's a bad thing. Well, I'd like us just to consider that anyone who thinks religious legalism is always ugly, well, they've Let me say it this way, they've never visited Jerusalem on a Friday night. The sun sets and Sabbath starts. The ancient streets fill with pedestrians and many of them are extended families walking together in distinctive dress to synagogue. Joyful hymns are loudly sung along the way, the music of the faithful echoing down the narrow streets. And it's beautiful. 
Throngs of worshipers stream across the massive square to assemble at the western wall for prayers. The night sky, the city walls gleam with light. It's warm, it's beautiful, it's inviting. The work week has ended. There is peace in Jerusalem. Jews gather, then head home to dine with extended families. There's feasting, there's laughter, there's deep conversation that goes long into the night. It's attractive. Legalism has other similarly endearing faces. Horse-drawn buggies leave pristine farms as the Amish travel rural roads in distinctive dress to gather in austere houses of worship. It's simple. It's no frills. It's get right down to what really matters, it would seem. Theirs is a life without modern conveniences, but it's lived close to the land. And it taps the best that rural life can offer. It's attractive. Legalism, by definition, is any system of religious rules and guidelines that worshipers follow in order to qualify as God's chosen people. Some of those systems are extremely attractive. But when legalism appears attractive, there is an especially urgent need to see its debilitating ugliness. Not in a popular sense, but in a real theologically robust sense. We do not begrudge anyone their freedom of conscience. We cannot. God doesn't give us that right. And we care not to dictate how anyone dresses or chooses to live daily life with, of course, some guidelines that are biblically supported. But that's not our purpose, to throw rocks at anybody in the way that they choose to live their life and their conscience. But we do recognize that salvation is not by works. It's not by works of the law. It is by grace alone in Christ alone. And so legalism, though often attractive, can destroy. At the close of Galatians chapter 4, we come to finish out that chapter here together today. If you'll make your way there, the Apostle Paul continues his plea for the Galatians to reject legalism, to reject any system of religious rules and guidelines that they would follow to qualify as God's people. False teachers were insisting that the Galatian followers of Christ must qualify as God's people by submitting to the dictates of the Mosaic law. Now the law God gave Moses on Mount Sinai was good. It was God's gracious gift to counsel and bless His people. But that law served a temporary function in God's salvation plan. A function that ended when Jesus the Messiah came and gave His life on the cross. Salvation from sin and acceptance with God was never gained by law keeping. Ever. But now that Jesus had come, now that the new age of salvation by the regenerating power of the Spirit had come, now that Gentiles were redeemed by faith alone in Christ alone, Submitting to the law was submitting to religious bondage. 
It was submitting to a system that had run its course, that had pointed forward, and was now closed. Paul understood the appeal of legalism. I think he really did. But he also realized the Galatians were risking their walk with God. They were already qualified as God's people. Not by performing works of the law, but by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this passage before us today, as we come to verse 21 of Galatians 4, doesn't really say anything differently than what we've been considering week in and week out. It's really repetitive of Galatians 3, much of that chapter. All that is new in the, is the unique angle that Paul takes to exhort his readers to reject legalism. It's, rather, it's a rather complicated line of argumentation, and I'll do my best to explain it without getting too bogged down into the details, but we're not hearing anything brand new today, we're just hearing it from a different angle. But let's take it in. And I know as we draw this to close, as we consider this truth today, there is important teaching for us here. And there is also some things I think that we will say and need to say on the basis of this text of Scripture that will be offensive. They're offensive to people. They differ. They cause differences between people. And they're hard to hear. But our walk with God is at stake. And they must be stated. And so Paul states it too the believers, these Gentile believers in Galatia, beginning at verse 21, he says in chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, but the, slave, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Note that phrase. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Bring forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So we, brothers, you Gentile brothers... We're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
So Paul appeals here in this text to the book of Genesis to argue that the Galatians were already sons of Abraham as Gentiles. As appealing as legalism may seem, they possess a superior status as God's adopted children. As appealing as legalism may seem, they will never qualify themselves as God's people any other way. On this side of the cross, God's people are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, the Spirit coming and baptizing and cleansing us and making us His child. That's the way to God. And so in verse 21, Paul appeals to the historical account of Abraham's two sons. Very simply, we see that here. We've read that account earlier this morning. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That is, listen to what the Mosaic writings say. I'm going to take you to the book of Genesis. For it's written there that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So we're looking here at especially Genesis 16, but 15 and through chapter 21, he's drawing from these narratives about the family of Abraham. And we saw that already this morning as we considered it, as we consider further that passage. It's not all that pretty, is it? It's not a very happy story. I mean, when you were reading together here, we were reading together Genesis 16, it's not like your heart rejoices and they say, this is such a wonderful passage. You go, this is one messed up family. There's weird things going on here. Now, they weren't as weird as they strike us. What was happening with Abraham and Sarai and Hagar was fairly common in that day, but remember God promises to bless all nations through Abraham by giving him offspring. But Sarai is barren. She is a a desolate woman, as the phrase would be here, and she can't have a son. So what are we going to do? God has said, I will have a son My offspring will be the blessing of the earth. My wife can't have a son. I'm supposed to have a son. What do we do? Well, there was a convention in that day, so it's fairly common, where a slave girl was given to Abraham and to father a son through her that would become the son of Sarai and Abraham. Abraham foolishly agrees to this scheme, reasoning that his son Ishmael will be the son that God promised. The godly line would pass through Ishmael. Verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. We know it didn't happen that way. Ishmael was the result of Abraham's human wisdom, his own scheme to do things his way. Isaac was the son of God's doing. God promised to give Abraham a son by Sarai. The godly line of promise would pass through Isaac, God insists. The birth of Isaac was God's doing, not man's, and no one could debate it. At this point... Paul does something that's rather strange in our way of thinking. Thus far, through verse 23, it's fairly straightforward. He's just drawing from Genesis. We know this story. What he does now is is odd to us. But what he does now is interprets the narrative in Genesis allegorically to apply to these Gentile believers. 
The only way this works, and this just helped us from the beginning, is to see the whole Bible as one. To see it all as one account, as one story by, written by God. Seeing it that way, he believes that there is application in Genesis 15, 16 through chapter 21 to these Gentile believers. Verse 24 reads again. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, Sarai, Hagar, are two covenants. That is, they represent or stand in here for two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Much could be said about the meaning of the word allegory. We could talk about that at some length. Much could be said about the method of allegorical interpretation. A lot more could be chased that way. And then we could talk about the relationship of allegorical interpretation to typological interpretation. And then at that point in the sermon, the three of us that were left could have a really fun conversation. It's really complicated. And Paul, as a rabbi in Israel, is a deep thinker and is doing some things here that aren't very common in our way of thinking. I'm going to spare you the details of what would be an interesting discussion for a few. But suffice it here to say what Paul is doing is, and this is oversimplification, but he's essentially illustrating. He's taking the Genesis account figuratively, and he's using the basic understanding and theme that is there. He's not trying to exegete it historically. He's not saying this is the meaning of Genesis. But he's saying, I'm going to use Genesis to illustrate a point for you. He sees a relationship between the birth of Abraham's sons and the fuller story of redemption that finds its zenith in Jesus Christ. So Paul has made the point repeatedly, but if the Galatians submit to the Mosaic law as a system by which to qualify as God's people, they will be enslaved. Let's just take a, a visual look here. What he's talking about is probably fairly obvious to us, but he talks about Jerusalem. He's going to talk about Jerusalem, the place, and also Jerusalem from above. He talks, secondly, about Mount Sinai. So in that, you, I don't even have to tell you where the Fertile Crescent is. It looks pretty obvious, doesn't it? But the, the fur, It looks like a tree, but that fertile tree in Egypt from where the Israelites left, then crossing the Red Sea, coming to Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly where the law was given, but here at Mount Sinai, God gave them the law to Moses, passing it on to Israel, His will, His purposes, and His way. Now, further north is Jerusalem, the city also set on a hill, and he takes these two places, and he identifies two covenants, two sons, two women. There's a lot that's going on here, a lot that he's doing with this conversation, but if we just get these ideas in mind, it helps us move forward, and he's just using a different angle to seek to move the Galatian believers. 
in verse 25, you notice there toward the end of the verse, he says that Hagar, Mount Sinai, Arabia, the uh, Mosaic Covenant, corresponds to present Jerusalem. It corresponds to present Jerusalem. So this is the Judaism of Paul's day that rejected Jesus as Messiah. To one degree, the false teachers who claimed to embrace Jesus as Messiah were peddling this same legalistic message. That it is by law-keeping, by obeying the religious rules, that we will please God and qualify as His people. On some level, even though they said that they had accepted Christ as Messiah, these false teachers were peddling that same message. They claimed to represent the apostles in Jerusalem, we noted earlier in the book, and to speak for the mother church in the holy city. We come to you Gentiles, we are explaining to you that you're not really fully qualified as the people of God, but we bring a message from Jerusalem. That's the present Jerusalem that he's talking about. The Christ-rejecting, gospel-rejecting Israelites. Paul undermines their argument by saying rather provocatively that Jerusalem is enslaved under the law. The legalism of Jerusalem appealed to the Galatian believers, but they needed to realize, verse 26, that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Profound statement. Hebrews 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you'll notice there the word in verse 26, is. Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Jesus Christ is ruling from heaven's throne. And His saving power invades this earthly realm. He invades it to redeem enslaved sinners from the punishment that is due their sin. The heavenly Jerusalem, as we know in the book of Revelation, will one day descend from heaven. And I believe will take up its position here on this earth. But it's already exerting its influence. That heavenly realm is is now exerting its influence. Some people seek salvation in law-keeping and are enslaved because they cannot fully obey the law, but others trust the death and the resurrection of Jesus to redeem them from their sin, and they are born from where? Or the other phrase, born again, can also be translated, they are born from above. They are born from above. They are born from the heavenly city. They are children of this heavenly city. Christ ruling and reigning and saving His people. Now Paul supports this thesis with an appeal to Isaiah 54. And just think of what you know of Isaiah 54. You know Isaiah 52. You know Isaiah 53. The servant of God who suffers and bears the sin of His people. Isaiah 54 in its historical context, tracks a different way, but Paul sees a connection. And so he says, in support, verse 27, this is what's written in Scripture, Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Two women here, the two women are Jerusalem at that time, and Jerusalem at an earlier time. At an earlier time, Jerusalem thrived. 
There were many people living in it. Where is Jerusalem now in Isaiah's prophecy? She's desolate. Her people have been taken captive. Because of their sin and their disobedience to God and His law, they have been carted off. First to Assyria, most significantly to Babylon. and They are in exile, and Jerusalem is like a desolate mother, weeping and longing to have her children, but not having any. But what does Isaiah prophesy? Rejoice, O barren one. There is a day that is coming when you will have children. You can break forth in singing. You can cry aloud again. Your children will sing in the streets. Their songs will echo through the narrow ways. And once again, they will be returned to the land. In a related manner, the heavenly Jerusalem is bearing born-again children who trust in Christ crucified and risen. That's the connection he's making. That's a lot of connections. I don't know how you exactly do that by way of biblical interpretation. But think of being saturated in and thinking so clearly about what is happening in the Old Testament context and what is happening now in Christ. He says the heavenly Jerusalem is bearing children and you are those children. You are those children. And so he exhorts them, beginning at verse 28, to see their identity as God's people. You are God's people on the basis of what God has done and and His saving grace, not on the basis of law-keeping. So now I say to you, verse 28, brothers, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. What does he mean? By trusting Christ as as your Savior, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are the adopted children of God. This was ultimately, Jesus coming, crucified and risen, this was ultimately the promise that was made to Abraham. You are recipients of that promise. You are now children of the heavenly Jerusalem. Along with Isaac, the son of promise, in that same frame and way of thinking as God paints the picture of salvation history, in that same way of thinking, you are children of God through faith in the promised Messiah. Verse 29, But just as at that time He who was born according to the flesh persecuted Him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Oh, he dips back in again and does something again that we don't expect. But here he's drawing from Genesis 21 and verse 9 where Ishmael ridicules and oppresses Isaac. So we go back into this really fairly ugly home situation and Abraham has this son, Ishmael, through Hagar, the slave girl, and he has this other son, Isaac, through his wife, Sarah. And the older boy, Ishmael, mocks and ridicules and persecutes the younger son, Isaac. What Paul says by way of illustration is that you Gentile readers are like Isaac. You are born not according to the flesh, not according to human means, or let's put it into context here, not according to law-keeping, You're not born according to the flesh. You, like Isaac, are ones who are born according to the Spirit. You have been saved by faith. You have been saved by the work of the Spirit of God. 
And those who want to follow legalistic ways and to qualify as God's people and to get you to qualify as God's people that way, they're persecuting you. That's what happened to Isaac. And that's what's happening to you. Just uses it as an illustration and a parallel. Verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He is not saying, chase out the false teachers with bricks or something. That might not have been a bad idea, maybe on some level, but that's not the point. It's not, it was good that Hagar got chased away. It was good that Ishmael was separated from his father. There wasn't a lot of good in any of this that was going on in Abraham's family, and the results continue to this day. That's not what he's commending. What he's saying is just by way of illustration, the promise went through Isaac. It went through the son who was born, not by Abraham's ingenuity and human effort, but by the intervention of God, bringing a new life to a barren woman. That's what happened there. That is in some sense, in a different and spiritual sense, what is happening with you. As children of the promise, they must never turn back no matter the opposition. You're being ridiculed for being these strange, unpopular, minority, despised Christians. The appeal is to join with this ancient tradition and to follow the appealing parts of this life under the law. Expect to be persecuted. Expect for there to be opposition. Expect people not to understand you. That's his point. So as Ishmael was not Abraham's heir, the Gentile believers were to understand that they were Abraham's offspring by faith in Jesus the Messiah through promise. And so, the conclusion being, for chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't revert to obedience to the law. Stand in the freedom that is in Christ. Christ liberated you to be free of the law, not to submit again to its yoke. Again, the slavery of the law is not owing to anything evil in the law. It's owing to what is evil in us. The bondage comes because we cannot keep it. Our incapacity disqualifies us to perform good deeds in order to honor God and qualify. We can't do it. And we won't do it. So don't turn back there. But trusting Christ as our Savior, we are born again by God's Spirit. We are set free in Christ. We're liberated now to please God from redeemed, transformed, Spirit-filled hearts that cry, Abba, Father. I know Him. I love Him. I walk in relationship to Him. My orientation is to know Him intimately and deeply and truly, not merely to follow the rules of some religious system. I know the Father. You have been purchased for this, says Paul. Don't go back. Don't go back to slavery. Don't revert 
to a temporal system that has now been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, you know, week after week after week here, we have considered this same theme. From one angle or another, Paul just continues to hammer this point home. It should be quite clear to us by now that any system of religious rules and guidelines that worshipers follow in order to qualify as God's chosen people is a system of spiritual enslavement. It may not look like that on the outside. It may look very attractive, but it's really slavery. If this is true, even with reverting to the dictates of the God-given Mosaic law, how much more is this true of any humanly conceived system of practice? Now, there's a, there's a response here, putting ourselves in our context today, America, the evangelical world in which we live. There's an immature and really almost petty response among many evangelicals to the word legalism. Any church or Christian who follows any guideline or rule that is not explicitly stated in the Bible is a legalist. And somehow it seems to be set along in maybe under the breath, and it's okay to throw things at them. They're not to be loved, they're not to be appreciated, they're not to be cared for because they're those dirty legalists. We're free to watch what we want, go where we want, do what we want, hear what we want, be whoever we want to be, as long as we love Jesus in the process. And anything else is legalism. Anyone who questions us is a legalist and is to be summarily dismissed. Such thinking is spiritually infantile at best. It's just immature. It's not the point. It shouts down all correction and exhortation and spiritual discipline in order to protect the gratification of the flesh under the guise of freedom in Christ. Let's call it what it is. And when we throw about the term legalist, we should be very, very careful. There are legalists among us. There's a legalistic root in my heart, and there's one in yours. But let's be careful about throwing about the word legalist to anybody who has any level of discipline in any way in their life. But among born-again believers today, there seems to be a far too casual relationship to real legalism. To attractive religious systems that turn to works of man-made religion to qualify us as righteous. And many would say, what are you talking about? That's not, that's not a temptation to us at all. It is. In our not-so-long-ago visit to Israel, our guide shared with us a story that many people just don't want to think about. They don't want to talk about. He said, it is troubling to see how many young evangelicals come to Israel as missionaries and join the Jewish faith. He says it happens over and over again. Because there's an appeal to it. There's a beauty in it. This is real legalism. Missionaries coming to proclaim Christ as the Savior in whom we are to put our faith and our trust that He is Messiah. 
but seeing in the beauty and the traction of legalism a better way. Let's get closer to home. The pull of especially, it seems, in recent decades, younger, trendy evangelicals who are attracted to the bright lights of religious systems that subtly turn the church into the system for salvation or the way of salvation. Cyprian, an ancient church father, said this, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. You can't be saved. God will not be your father unless the church is your mother. Now, I've never talked to Cyprian. I hope I do someday. I don't know if he really meant that the way that it's often taken. He may have been just speaking provocatively, but there are many who have used what he said there, that the church is our mother, and they have gone with that idea. And there are a number of Christian communions in our day that speak of the mother church. They do so in a legalistic manner. And as they speak of the mother church, there is an amazingly welcoming response on the part of many evangelicals, which is mystifying to me. I want you to look very carefully again at verse 26 and ask the question, who is our mother? The Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. She is the source of our birth. Heaven itself, the reigning Christ, is the source of our new life. Now, going back to what Cyprian said, he can no longer have God as his father who has not the church for his mother. There's a part of me that I really want to celebrate that and say, that's good. And we bring that out in application in the significance of the local church of its importance in the life of believers. And I, I, I read from the other side, from those theologians who say the church is our mother, and they speak so ill against evangelicals who do not seem to care about the local church. There's no sense of accountability to the local church, no understanding of how it works. And I say, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. But the church cannot give birth to anyone. The church is not our mother. If you think about it, that's illogical. The church cannot give birth to itself. We are born from above. Jerusalem above is our mother. Heaven above is our source of origin. And I, I in no way mean to be offensive, but to say this means something. And so I quote from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which refers to the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. That's a quote. And I quote again, the church in this world is the sacrament of salvation the sign and the instrument of the communion of God and man. There it is. There is the church is our mother. There is 
we will appeal to God, we will qualify as God's people as we participate in the ritual of the church. The church is the instrument of the communion of God and man. Note verse 26, and don't forget it. Jerusalem is our mother. So we, as a local church, are committed to the life of the local church. We believe in its accountability. We believe that people should be part of a church, a member of a church, and participate in that church's life, that this is Christ's intention and how he designs for his people to grow. So we celebrate that. But we do not call the church our mother. Jerusalem above is our mother. And there is an attraction in it. And there are many who have gone into such systems and and love to see the historical roots and the ancient ways and the clear system of what we should do and what we should be and the fulfillment of man-made religion. But what Paul is saying to us is be careful. There's an attraction there. Whether you want to go to the Jewish faith or the Hindu faith or the Islamic faith, whether you want to become Amish, there's, there's beauty in these systems on a certain level. And if you get sick and tired enough of life, they really get more attractive. I don't own any Amish dress, but I'm thinking about it. I'd like to buy it sometime, and some days I'd like to go, back, go out there and live there. I know they got all the problems that we do, but there's, there's appeal there. Paul says, listen, you go that way, and it's like a married couple in a king's court who returns to the rules of courtship. You're married. You're free. Work out your relationship within the bonds of marriage. Don't bring in the overseers. Or it's like a son who inherits his father's kingdom and reverts to the rules of his minority, submitting to his handlers and to his overseers. Don't do that. You can relate to God in the Spirit according to His Word and Spirit, and you can know Him as He intends. You can walk with Him as Abba Father. Don't go to some system, because when you go to that system, it becomes your mother. It becomes the rule and the guide, and it dictates your relationship with the Lord because it's all based on the rules, the regulations, and the expectations of that faith. Come to know God in spirit. Do so within the context of a local church. Do so walking in fellowship with other believers. But know that we are born from above. Jerusalem above is our mother. I mean in no way if I have offended any here to be offensive, but to say you have to come to terms with this. Do I know God by rule keeping? By a system that has been provided? Or do I know God through His Spirit, by faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. What is it for you? What will it be for you? And For those of us who know the truth of the gospel, this is what we're always proclaiming. What we're always bringing to unbelievers in this world is the freedom that can be had in knowing God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can be more beautiful and attractive than that. 
It does not mean we throw out every rule. It does not mean we live our life without discipline. It does not mean we never say no, for the grace of God teaches us to say no. But it means that my relationship is based entirely upon my trust in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. My eternal home is the home that rules my heart. My mother is the Jerusalem from above. There's no mother on earth that can give me saving grace. None. But God can. And if he has, that is beauty. Father, we thank you for this reminder. I don't know that we necessarily even would say we need it. In our own human ways of thinking, Perhaps we feel we've gotten the point. Perhaps we feel there's absolutely no danger of us falling into any religious system to qualify us before you. But Lord, that temptation is there. It's there among us. It's there in our heart. And whether it's a formal system or just a system of our own making, we know that every one of us can erect our own rules, our own ways, and seek to qualify before you on the basis of our own rule-keeping. I pray that you would deliver us from that, deliver this church from that. May we persevere in the faith, not turn back to the ways of man-made religion, but cling to our relationship with you. And may it lead us to say no to ungodliness. But may it never be fettered by any mother on earth. You alone are our God. You are the one who has given us birth and our claim of inheritance in eternity is based on this truth, that Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, even in contrast to the present Jerusalem of Paul's day and our own, that is our mother. And we thank you for that, for that birth from above. We rejoice in it. We cling to it. And with no pride, no self-congratulation, we accept it as a gift of your grace, and know that in that there is ultimate beauty. We thank you, praying in behalf of those who continue to cling to their own self-centered ways and to their own religious rules. Bring them to a knowledge that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that that new birth comes alone from your throne. May they see that truth and respond today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. And for a few moments, let's respond in our hearts.